You're listening to another New Hope Chapel podcast. Hi, this is Justin Hibbard, pastor of New Hope Chapel. I wanted to thank you for listening to this message from our teaching team, and I pray that God uses it to touch your heart. Well, good morning. My name is Julie Coleman. I am one of six uh, members of the teaching team here at New Hope. A lot of you know that um, before I started into ministry full-time, one of the things that I did, or, or well, my job was to be a school teacher. I was a school teacher for 20 years in elementary school education. Um, and the first three years of my teaching career were, went before kids. Um, and, and so the, I was a single woman the first year I taught. The second year, I was a newlywed. The third year, I was pregnant with my first child. And at the end of the third year, I quit teaching to stay home uh, with my children and, um, and stay there for seven years. Um, and I, I, when I look back on those days, there's a lot of things I would do over, of course, because I didn't know what the heck I was doing but, <laughs> as a teacher. But one of the things that I would change was how I interacted with parents. I, I kind of considered parents almost an impediment getting in the way of what I was trying to do in the classroom at times. You know, if parents had concerns and came to me, I'd be inwardly rolling my eyes and thinking they don't know what they're talking about, and I'd have kind of an attitude problem a little bit. I hope it didn't show, but it it was in my heart. Um, But when I went back to teaching seven years later after being a parent for many years and after having a chance to sit on the other side of the parent-teacher conference table, I understood a few things that I hadn't understood before. I understood that parents know their child better than anybody else. And parents love their child more than anyone else. And that a teacher better darn well listen to what they have to say because they have really important input into the life of that child and, and the best way to approach them and work with them. So that idea, that, uh, that understanding as a mom really changed my perspective and really made me a much more effective teacher in terms of communicating with parents and in, ultimately in um, effectiveness with the child. The, light, the right perspective can really be life-changing. Today we're going to start a new study, and we're going to start it on the book of Philippians. Um, it's a letter that Paul wrote to Christians in Philippi. Now, a lot of you may have heard in the past that the theme of Philippians is joy. Has anybody ever heard that? Um, and joy is in there a lot. I think it's mentioned either joy, rejoice, glad, all of those synonyms. I think it's like 19 times or 16 times, something like that. But I don't think it's the main thrust of the Philippians letter. I think that it's a byproduct of the main thrust that Paul is giving. Um, After studying Philippians, and our Bible study group did do it a few years ago, and we had a terrific study in it, um, the message of Philippians is about living life on earth in light of heavenly reality. Um, It's about having the right perspective. And so we're going to be taking 10 weeks in this series, and the teaching team uh, is going to share uh, the teaching of this with me. Um, and and um, we're going to be walking through this wonderful book. We're going to unpack Paul's instruction on how to live here and now as citizens of the kingdom. And it's all about perspective. Well, that idea of citizenship meant something to the Philippians. Um, we can get that next slide. Okay, good. Uh, just to give you a little background on Philippi, um, you can see, I hope you can understand what this is. There's Europe here, there's that peninsula of Greece, and, um, and then you can look over on, across the Aegean Sea and you see Asia Minor, which is now present-day Turkey, 
And Philippi sits right at the top of the Aegean Sea. It was near the coast, it was about 10 miles from the coast, and it was um, the first city in Europe that received the gospel message. Um, and so it, it became quite uh, influential in that whole region. It was located um, on the only mountain pass in the area. So if you were going from west to east, east to west, you had to pass through Philippi. It was on this big road called the Ignatian Way, and it carried a lot of military and commercial traffic right through the city. So it was a very strategic place for Paul to plant the church and to have the gospel be known, because travelers traveling through exposed the gospel would then bring it to their own place where they were going. About a century and a half before Paul's time, B.C., um, Caesar Augustus declared Philippi, which was a little tiny town at that point, a Roman colony because he had had a great military victory there. So they got to be a colony. Now, being a Roman colony was a big deal because it gave every citizen of Philippi the status of being a Roman citizen. So that meant that they had legal rights. They were able to buy and sell property. They were able to seek civil action or have a lawsuit in the court. Um, and the land that they owned was exempt from taxation. Also, Philippi became a place, it was an outpost, and so what generals would do and, and with the blessing of the Roman Empire was give retiring um, officers in the Roman army land in Philippi. And so a lot of Roman officers would retire in Philippi, and so as, uh, because of that, there was a very strong pro-Roman sentiment going on in that town, um, kind of a little bit what the, the idea of having a naval academy here in Annapolis does for us. We have a very strong Navy presence, and a lot of people who went to the Naval Academy eventually come back and retire here in Annapolis because they love it so. And so we, and you have that real strong patriotic Navy flavor to the town. Well, that's kind of the same thing with Philippi. The Philippians were very, very proud of their status as Roman citizens, and they conducted themselves with that citizenship in mind. They lived their lives in light of their place and rights within the empire. Now, as Paul first went to Philippi, it was during his second missionary journey, and um, I'd love for you, I don't have time to go into the details, but they're great stories. In Acts 16, it get, talks about Paul's arrival in Philippi and his first three converts. And um, they were uh, the, the Lydia, the, the maker of purple cloth, and her household. Then there was a slave girl who prophesied, and um, the, her slave owners were making money. Paul and Silas got thrown in jail for releasing that spirit from her. And then the Philippian jailer ends up, after an earthquake and very dramatic events, becoming a believer. So that all happened in Acts 16. And uh, it's a really, really fascinating story. But that was in between A.D. 49 to 52. Now, five years later, Paul returns to Philippi twice in one year. And um, that's in A.D. 57. And then in another five years, ten years now from the first converts, Paul writes his letter to the Philippians. So that just kind of gives you a little bit idea of a timeline. We're talking about a ten-year span between the events of Acts 16 and then... Um, and then the, the actual writing of the letter. So we're going to go ahead and read. We're going to cover the first set, 11 verses. If you have your Bibles and want to open to Philippians, it's a great idea. I will have some of the scripture up there on the screen for you. But let's go ahead and pray before we get started. Lord, we thank you so much for this opportunity to study, study this epistle that Paul wrote. 
Help us, God, with your Holy Spirit. Guide us. Give us spiritual eyes to understand truths. Pierce our hearts with your word. Transform us, even today, as we sit listening under the sound of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're going to start by reading the uh, greeting that Paul had for the Philippians in verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to notice something. In 10 years, a lot of development has occurred in the city, uh, the church of Philippi, because we went from a few converts, which were crazy different in who they were, to this organized church where there's actually official elders and deacons. Okay, we're going to continue on, uh, verses 3 to 7. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you, all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. For it's only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Well, right away we can see as he greets the Philippians, there's a warmth there that you don't see in many of the other letters. There's a real personal relationship that Paul has with the Philippians. He, first of all, he doesn't call himself the Apostle Paul or you know, that kind of thing. He doesn't give himself or Timothy any kind of a title. It's Paul and Timothy, your friends. Um, and then there's this warmth in the writing, considering them partners, fellow partakers in grace and in um, the support of the spreading of the gospel. And a word, particular word that he uses, I think it's in verse 7, um, really g- gives us a feel for Paul's emotional connection with the Philippians. He says, um, I, how I long for you with all the affection of Jesus Christ. Now that affection, that word affection, is the Greek word splachnon. And that word means from the bowels. I didn't make this up. The Greeks thought of the strong, passionate emotions, like love and you know, anger and hatred. Those things came from the bowels. We would say it's from my heart, but that's what they thought, the bowels. So, you know, girls, on Valentine's Day, if your husband says, I love you from my bowels, they're being very Greek. (laughs) But that's the kind of depth of feeling Paul has for these Philippians. And so, and he expresses it beautifully just with some of the things that he says. But I really want to look at what he says again in verse 6. He says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. Paul's confidence, Paul's joy in the Philippians is not based on who they are. It's based on God at work in them. You know, he says that God's already begun the work. He who began, past tense, And he knows that God is continuing to work in them, will perfect it. And Avi says, will bring it to completion, which is the idea of the words there um, from the Greek. So presently, he's at work. And then he knows that God will someday have an end, see a completion to that work 
on the day of Jesus Christ. So God's work in them is past, it's present, and it's future. That idea of our salvation being something that's already taken place, but still more to come. Not yet. And that's the idea he's getting across in this verse. So he is not so confident in the Philippians. He's confident in God who's at work in the Philippians to make every believer into the um, image of Jesus Christ. God started it, he continues it, and he's going to complete it someday. Then the next thing Paul does is he offers up a prayer for the Philippians. And I really feel that the prayer really echoes the sentiment that he just gave us. Let's read it. Verses 8 to 11. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So I want to look at this prayer phrase by phrase, and we're going to concentrate on this little section right here. The first thing he says is, this I pray, that your love may abound. Now, I think it's a really appropriate thing for us to look at that word love, because there's a lot of words for love in Greek in the Bible. This one is the deepest kind of love you can have, agape love. And I'm sure you're familiar with that term agape. Um, We throw it around a lot. But just so you have refreshed on what agape love is, it's a love that's not based on complacency or even our affection, how we feel. It's not based on some affinity that we have with people, things we have in common or things that we love about them, that kind of thing. Um, It's actually the kind of love that God gives us. He decided to love us based not on our merit, on what we did for him. He decided to love us actually in spite of what we deserved. And the kind of love that's not an impulse, it's not feelings, but it's, and not something that comes naturally from us. Agape love is a self-sacrificing kind of love. Um, it's not self-seeking, um, loving for what we get out of the relationship. It's not like that at all. It's in love involving action, and it actively seeks the well-being of other people. That's what it is, sometimes to our own hurt. Loving like this is a way that we have to die to self in order to be able to love like this, considering the needs of others more important than us. It's the kind of love God had for us, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God loved and that love prompted him to give a great sacrifice to himself in order that we might have that benefit. That's agape love. And that's what Paul is praying for them, that agape may abound in them. But Paul doesn't just pray agape. He gives some parameters on how we're supposed to carry out that love. Uh, Now, if you think of things that you've seen, like a radio tower or maybe ship masts, um, wind turbines, utility poles, often something that's long and tall and straight needs guy wires to keep that tension on both sides of that a tower in order to keep it straight and functioning correctly. Well, Paul gives kind of guy wires to that agape love that we're supposed to be exhibiting. The first guy wire is in knowledge. Um, it's, the word is epigenosis. Now, gnosis means knowledge, but it's kind of a cursory knowledge and understanding um, from afar. But epigenosis, that prefix in front of that, gives um, it a much deeper meaning. Um, 
it's uh, the idea that the knowledge that comes from a relationship and not just something that we observe from afar. It's a depth of understanding from firsthand experience. So our love needs to be guided by knowledge. The second guy wire Paul gives is the idea of discernment. The Greek word uh, is, is talking about perception, a moral understanding, an ability to make a good judgment about something, kind of a selectiveness in what's considered valuable. Last week, I went to my aunt's house. She's an um, elderly lady. She's got early signs of dementia. We need to get her out of her house and into a place where there's more support for her. And so she's going to move to Iowa. She lives in northern New Jersey right now. And she's going to um, get a little apartment nearby her brother, who lives there in Iowa. And so we needed to help her get rid of her household goods and pack what she was going to bring. I was dreading it. I really would have dreaded if I knew how bad it was going to be. <laughs> but um, it was tough because she got hysterical a few times. We had a lot of drama as it was going on. But she had all this stuff, and, and really in her lifetime, she had absorbed three different households between her mother and then um, her aunt, elderly aunt that lived with her for a while, so she got all her stuff, and then she married a man who was a widow, and so he, she got a widower, and she got all his stuff. And so she had a lot of stuff, and it's it was good stuff. It was great stuff. It was beautiful dishes and, and uh, lovely furniture and all kinds of stuff. And I'm up there, and she said, you know, what do you want? Take what you want. Well, that was really hard because I wanted a lot of stuff. And so I was looking, and I said, you know what? I have to, I have to frame what I'm doing up here with my little Santa Fe. I have to frame the, the, the reality that I'm going to have to meet Steve at the door with this stuff and want to bring it into the house. <laughs> because the reality is, my house is already full. And so to bring more stuff was going to be crazy, right? So I started looking at everything, and there were some beautiful things that I passed by. Beautiful, great big Lennox dishes. I still keep thinking about them, but it's over. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I only took the stuff that had value to me. And there was, I made two criterions. The first criterion was, is there some kind of a sentimental thing? Because some of the things were my grandmother's. I had memories of them as a child. Yes, I wanted those things. And then the other thing was utility. Now, she had a 12-piece beautiful china um, uh, setting, and she said, you know, do you, do, are you interested in china? <laughs> yes. So I took the china home. It's gorgeous. I love it. But... That was it. I mean, I didn't bring a lot of stuff home with me because I knew I had to be discerning. I had to make a judgment call about what was considered valuable enough to bring it all the way home through a snowstorm and then find a place for it in my already stuffed full house. Discernment is the ability to make a judgment call like that. It's necessary in how you're going to love someone. You have to pick and choose how that agape love is going to play out. Now, it doesn't mean that they're always going to get what they want because we all know that sometimes what we want and what we need are two very different things. And it's not how God loves us. It means choosing to give the recipient of our love what they need. And it's exactly what God did. This great quote from Max Licata says, Faith is not the belief that God will do what you want. It's the belief that God will do what's right. Right by us. Right by his judgment, his wisdom, and his goodness. 
He only does what's according to truth, and he only does what's according to his wisdom. And our love, our agape love, needs to be a reflection of God's character, of that same love that he gives to us. Now, there's an example of this, and I hope I'm not going to be offensive to anybody. It's not my intention. But there's a huge um, thing right now on the Internet about the church's response to homosexuals. And you see everything from the gamut on, on Christians writing about it. There's an outright rejection and total judgment. They can't even darken the doors of the church. Kind of an idea being put out there. There's the more moderate response of love the sinner but hate the sin. And then the third is this total acceptance on the other end of the spectrum of people that are homosexuals and also uh, proving the lifestyle. The lifestyle. Now, some blogs I read have basically said there's nothing wrong with practicing homosexual sexuality. And they say it's not a sin. After all, God created them that way. I get the intent. The intent is to love everyone, no matter what their sexual uh, orientation, unconditionally, to remember that we're all from the same playing field. We're all recipients of grace. We all need a savior. I'm on the board with all of that. But going so far as to contradict what something the Bible talks about, about naming it as a sin, I think it's taking the guy wire of knowledge, of truth, and clipping it. And now all of a sudden you've got this overbalance and um, it's not going to work. Proverbs says there's a way that seems right to a man, but at the end that leads to destruction. Now, I'm not trying to offer any solutions on this whole issue because I'm still struggling with my own um, response to it. But we do need to know that the wires of discernment and the wires of knowledge have to guide how we love. And somehow that's got to work. And that's where it's, it, the answer has to be. We can't ignore them. So the kind of love that God, excuse me, that Paul is defining here is a love that comes from growing insight into what? the character and will of God, a love that's defined not by a human criteria, a love that's defined by God's example and how he loves us. And we have to hold up our potential action in loving others to that high standard of, tr of truth in scriptures. Um, scripture can help us discern the most godly way to proceed. So Paul wants his, the Philippians to love within correct parameters. It's not appropriate to just bow down to whatever the person is doing or what like for example an abusive husband you have an abusive husband it you know to be a doormat wife and to allow him to continue to abuse not only is that a really bad unhealthy thing for you but for him it's not healthy we need to guide people who are in sin into uh living a way that will please god and so that's loving god's way cognitive choice based on truth what those you are loving truly need. And then Paul gives the results of loving in that way. The first thing he says is that you may approve the things that are excellent. That word approve has the idea of testing, examining, scrutinizing whether something is genuine or not. Um, it gives, it, it's the, uh, often used to describe when they would take coins and you know, bite into them to see whether it was truly gold, that examination of, of metals. Practicing love within godly parameters is going to result in an ability to discern, discern the best way to do things. 
Um, like Paul wrote the Romans, he said, be transformed so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So that's one thing we'll get from loving that way. The second one is, in order to be sincere and blameless. That's the word sincere, pure, the real thing. Um, having God's kind of love with those parameters of knowledge and discernment keeps the giver really from having impure motives and why they're loving somebody. When you love the way God loves, we're not talking about something we're going to get in return. So it's not going to come from a selfish place. And then the second word is blameless. Well, that, I, that word con, um, gives the idea of not being a stumbling block to others, not being an impediment to their progress. Because if we're loving incorrectly, we're actually getting in the way of their growth and getting in the way of God's work of transformation in them. And then Paul says, until the day of Christ. I had a meeting yesterday with one of my seminary buddies, and um, he was starting a new Bible study, and so I was showing him how I've been doing Bible study for the past couple of years and um, get, got a chance to help him think through how he was going to teach. But anyway, he said, oh, until the day of Christ, because I was showing him the Greek in one part I was struggling with, and he's like a major Greek expert. I love it. So I'm always like, what does this mean? But Because um, I was really bad at Greek. But anyway, he, he, said, he said, yeah, day of Christ, day of Christ. Seems like it's, it's on, somewhere else in Philippians. And he's flipping through. He said, I know there's a thing. I can't remember. And I said, all right, I'll look for it. I'll look for it. So anyway, he, he went home, and, and I went upstairs, and I said, oh, my gosh, here it is. In Philippians 6, remember, I, or 1-6, I said, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And now here it is again. You can be sincere, prove the things of excellence, sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. That, that phrase gets repeated within a couple of verses of each other. So I realize that this is something of significance. Um, so why say it twice? Well, I think it's part of that future reality, that not yet part, um, that Paul is talking about. It's very important for a citizen who's living in light of his citizenship to know and live in light of the fact that there's going to be an end, an end to that perfecting process that someday we are going to be perfect. Isn't that awesome? I love it because, boy, I got a long way to go. I'm really excited about that. So having been filled Paul goes on one last phrase. He says, Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Having been filled. It's the Greek perfect tense. The perfect tense is that it's already happened and it will not need to be repeated. It's a done deal kind of a, a, a verb tense. We've been already been filled with the fruit of righteousness because why? Our righteousness comes through Christ Jesus. And so therefore... Um, it's already been done. Okay, so I started looking at, at, I looked at the prayer, and Steve and I were discussing over dinner last night, and he said, you know what? This prayer is really an echo of that verse 6. And I looked at it, and doggone if he wasn't right. I'm so glad I married that man. But the first, the first thing that Paul says is this. That, um, he said that God made us righteous, right? He who began a good work in you. Then Paul in his prayer says that God is working to perfect us. In, in Philippians uh, 1.6, he will perfect it. And then finally, he talks about God's work someday going to be complete until the day of Jesus Christ. So you see how the prayer just goes right hand in hand 
with the the idea that Paul gave in verse 6. Love it. It's an echo of what he has already stated. The work of God in the past, in the present, and in the future. And that's the reality for every citizen of the kingdom of God. So, there's the exegesis of the passes. And what we really want to know before you leave here is, so what? What does Paul's opening message in verses 1 through 11 mean for us today? Because here we are in the 21st century, and how does it change what we do tomorrow morning? Well, the first thing is, is that we have to understand that we are living in the same reality, the same reality that the Philippians had 2,000 years ago. Our salvation began when he saved us. It's being continued in us and will someday be complete. The Bible tells us <clears throat> God has made us righteous, the past. He's, um, in Second Corinthians, it says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So you have that idea of that past work of salvation. And we know in the present, he's working to perfect us. For those he foreknew, Romans says, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. So again, you get this idea of God working us toward a specific goal. And then finally, we know that someday that work, praise God, is going to be complete in the future. Um, in 1 John, it says, Beloved, we now, are children, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be, but we know when he appears, we will be like him. Perfect. Someday it's all going to happen because we'll see him just as he is. We need to live in light of that reality, past, present, future work of God in us, in mind. So I thought of really a couple of points I wanted to make in closing. The first is we're all a work in progress. And no one is perfect yet. There's a trend I've seen, and I don't know, maybe it's been going on forever, but I've been aware of it, especially in the past couple decades, of people that hop from one church to the next. Um, they'll, they'll start, um, you know, I'll see it on Facebook or whatever, and they're so excited for this new place, and oh, their heart is so full, and they worship so well, and this and that. The people are so great, but as the honeymoon wears off, and they start to get to know people, suddenly those imperfections in others start to show through. And after a few difficult encounters with different people within the church body, they're discouraged with the whole group of them, and they end up moving on to the next latest and greatest thing in the Annapolis community. I've had personally seen several friends go in that cycle. Um, they started at Riva Trace Baptist, and then they moved on to Mariners, and oh, it's so much better, and then, you know, now they're at Bay Area, and who knows how long they'll stay there before they get discouraged and move on. Some of those kind of people have come through our doors as well. It's inevitable. Um, but they'll stay a while, and that's great, but eventually they'll leave because, and here's a news blast, we are a flawed group. Well, at least you are. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> we're a mess. The reason Jesus had to die to save us is because we're a mess, and it doesn't change. It doesn't change when we become Christians Immediately. Now God takes us and he's transforming us and, and that work is going on, but we are a mess and will continue to depend on the grace of Jesus Christ 
and the grace of God in our lives from now until we leave the earth. It's just a a matter of fact. And we're going to make mistakes. We're going to sin. We're going to offend each other, um, whether we're trying to or not. And sometimes we actually are trying to because we're those kind of people. And, And you end up, yeah, we're flawed. We're flawed. And so... If, if people are going to come here and look for the perfect church, I give them a couple of years. When I first started, and then they're out of here. I, I, um, I, when I first started coming to New Hope, years and years and years ago, um, I had to go through membership classes, just like everybody else does. And so I was uh, in membership class, and there was this lady that was there, and she said, oh, she left her old church because she just couldn't worship with those people anymore. And I looked over and I thought, I'll give you two, three years tops, and you're out of here. And guess what? She was. And the reason she left, she couldn't worship here anymore because of the people. So it, it, the problem is we're always moving on to what seems like greener pastures. But what we're looking for, it doesn't exist because the church is filled with flawed people. It's why we need Jesus. And we have to keep that in mind. The reality of the kingdom of heaven is that life in the church can get messy. And it's delusional to expect anything else. The second thing, though, and this is better news, (laughs) we can trust God to be moving in each other. Um, The Holy Spirit is living in every believer, and he loves us too much to let us stay the same. And so he is slowly, gently, sometimes not so gently, transforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. He convicts us when we sin. He teaches us, gives us spiritual eyes. He guides us. He's in the transformation business, and he'll continue to move us toward perfection. And the good news is, is that we can be part of the transformation in each other when we love them with that godly love guided by discernment and knowledge that Paul is talking about. It's not always easy. In fact, sometimes it's almost impossible to love people in that way when we've been offended or whatever. But as we do submit to the Spirit, our lives of obedience um, to the Spirit, and we act in agape love, not only do we become an instrument in the transformation in others, which is a great privilege, but God is transforming us as well. It's good news all around. Win-win. So together, we grow into maturity as a body in Christ, moving stealthily toward God's end goal for all of us, being molded into the image of Christ. And the best news of all is my last point. It won't always be like this. Someday we're going to be perfect. We're going to be finished. We won't struggle with that sin nature anymore. We won't have problem with other people's sin nature affecting us. It's going to be a done deal. It's going to be over. Um, we're not going to ever have to tr- apologize for our bad behavior or struggle against our inclination to sin. When I was in my junior year in college, I had the hardest year, one of the hardest years of my life. I look back now and go, what the heck? That wasn't hard. But back then it seemed hard. <laughs> there were a couple of things that made my junior year hard. The first was that um, traditionally at my school, the junior year of the L.E.D. program was the hardest academic year. There were a lot of really tough courses a lot of uh, strong um, academic requirements, and it, w- it was a struggle to get through. We had a million files and all kinds of things to make, and everybody was staying up all hours in the morning trying to get things finished up. It was tough. But beside the academic, there was also the challenge that I had 
um, signed on to become a resident assistant that year, and I was on a floor in the dorm in charge of the entire floor of women. And so I was to be their guidance and to be their comfort, and so I was you know, kind of the mom of the floor. And, and so there was a lot of um, stress on me because of that. And then finally, I was having big troubles with my boyfriend. And I had been dating him for like a year and a half, and things were starting to go sour, and I was trying to salvage the relationship because I did love him. And eventually, right before finals, um, that fall semester, he broke up with me, and it just blew my world apart. So all of those things put together made it a very hard year for me, and I started to want to get out of it. I wanted to quit. Oh, no, it wasn't Steve. I met him way later. And thank God that guy broke up with me. <laughs> Just want to clarify. But anyway, but here's the thing. I was so distraught and so overwhelmed, I just wanted out. Now, this is back before cell phone days, if you can imagine such a thing. And I got to call my parents once a week on Sunday, collect for 20 minutes, on one of three pay phones in the entire dorm. It was a different world back then. And so I would call my parents and end up bawling my eyes out. I want to come home. I don't want to be in school anymore. I don't think I can do this. I think I need a semester off. And I was just ready to, to bolt. And my father said to me, Julie, can you, can you wait on this for seven days till you call us next week? Can you, can you make it another week? I guess I can make another week. He said, all right, we'll do that. Just one week, seven days, and then call us back. Okay. So I waited, survived the week, called him after seven days. I want to come home. I'm really unhappy. And he said, okay, how about seven? If you just give it some time, seven days, we'll pray about it. You'll pray about it. He walked me through that semester, seven days at a time, until I got to the end where the semester, suddenly I could see that light at the end of the tunnel, and I knew I could make it. And so it gave me the strength to persevere and carry on until um, I did actually get through that semester and the year. I did graduate, and win-win. Um, <laughs> Uh, but knowing what eventually was going to come to an end gave me the strength to endure the present. As hard as now sometimes seems, as hard as it is fighting against what has not yet been perfected in us, as hard as it is dealing with the imperfections of others, there's an end in sight. The day of Jesus Christ, it's going to end there's a light at that end of the tunnel. And let that hope of that reality, and it is a reality, spur you on. Give you the strength to continue even though the, the present seems difficult. Because one day our tears are going to be wiped dry and our frustration is going to totally change to joy because he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. So as a citizen of heaven, live your life this week in light of that reality. Let's pray. God, we do thank you that you've revealed the whole thing, the past, your present work, the future. Thank you, God, that we can depend on your faithfulness and know that you will do what you said you were going to do. Help us, God, to live our lives in light of that reality, the reality of heaven's work here on earth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's New Hope podcast. Chapel's located podcast. in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a small expression of the much larger body of Christ that spans across the world. We're a group of believers helping each other on our lifelong journeys to become like Jesus. While we have a variety of distinctives that make us a unique church, our main desire is to be God's church, to love Him, follow Him, to learn from Him, to let Him lead us and change our lives. We are His disciples, and He is our rabbi. He is our rabbi. Join us in the story that God is writing called New Hope Chapel. To learn more about our church, visit us at newhopechapel.org or check us out on Facebook slash newhopechapelmd. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and iTunes. Music kindly provided by the least of these. Thanks again for listening and God bless.